Welcome to the UNSW Centre for Ideas podcast, a place to hear ideas from the world's leading thinkers and UNSW Sydney's brightest minds. I'm Anne Mossop, Director of the UNSW Centre for Ideas. In part one of the 2022 Gandhi oration, Citizens for Climate Action, Jean Hinchcliffe, an 18-year-old climate justice activist and organiser within School Strike for Climate, argued that a citizens' movement could be the phenomenon that breaks our political polarisation and results in genuine climate action. We hope you enjoy the talk. My name is Jean and I am an activist. I live in Birch Grove in unceded Gadigal land and also just want to acknowledge that, again, we're all meeting here today on unceded, stolen Aboriginal land. So, sort of beginning with a little bit about me. Growing up, I've always been a very, very political person. Like, even as a kid, I remember being in debate club and loving all of that and loving getting involved and having these sort of conversations um, about a whole bunch of different social issues. But I, I have always felt sort of pretty powerless to actually changing them. I remember climate change in particular was a big one in that. I remember being about six years old and one of my first assignments for school was having to do a PowerPoint about a country. And I chose Antarctica and learning about polar bears and ice caps melting and feeling pretty dreadful about the whole thing. But again, it was this massive, large issue that was sort of so far beyond me. So then as I got to high school and I, I learned more, I had this sort of greater sense of unrest about a whole matter of different issues. Because whilst growing up, things had always concerned me, um, I always assumed that adults knew what they were doing. <laughs> and, you know, you, you sort of ask about these things and someone say, oh, don't worry, they're, they're figuring it out. And it seemed like year after year, things weren't quite getting figured out. So, yeah, I ended up first getting involved in the Vote Yes campaign for marriage equality. And what was so fantastic about that for me was that it felt like for the first time in my life, I could make a tangible impact on something that was important to me. Because, you know, I didn't have a vote yet, but I could maybe help a bunch of people to get their votes in and, and vote yes. And I did a whole bunch of phone banking and handing out flyers and lots of conversations and stuff. And it was this incredible experience for me because for the first time in my life, I felt like I could actually make an issue make a, a difference to this issue. <laughs> so yeah, eventually climate change sort of became the front of my agenda. I saw how the UN report, which gave us a deadline of 12 years to avert the worst impacts of the climate crisis. And that on top of this sort of incremental growth of this issue throughout my life, um, from this far off future thing to something that was at our doorsteps as Australians, made me realise that I had to take action. But, you know, I, I sort of struggled at first for quite a while because um, I couldn't really find anything that quenched that thirst for me because as I looked around, there were programs made for young people, but almost always they were things that felt like adults telling you what to do or you, you'd have conversations, but there's very, very little direct action. You know, there's, there's very little that seemed to hit hard enough, that cut through, that would communicate the urgency of this issue. And then, very fortunately, a friend of mine sent me a link to the newly formed School Strike for Climate website. 
And I immediately just sort of was jolted with electricity seeing it because I felt right away that this was a possible solution and this was a possible way that I could actually make a difference in this space and, and, and do something that was really incredibly unique. So I ended up emailing that night and saying, hey, I'd love to be involved in any way possible and, you know, sort of help this come to Sydney, do all that sort of stuff. Um, and they responded and were like, oh, we'd love to help you achieve this goal. And then I realized that I was in charge of Sydney and I have no idea how to organize a protest and I was completely lost. And that's how I sort of stepped into community organizing. So from there, I founded the Sydney Group of School Strike for Climate and got involved with a bunch of other kids, as well as a lot of adult volunteers and mentors that helped us along the way. And then we sort of start to suddenly grow in Sydney and I, I start to feel some momentum among other young people. And then across the country, we get more and more kids getting involved and we go from a national meeting of maybe five people to like 50 over just a couple of weeks. And then... In particular, that first strike, we were expecting a few hundred people maybe in Sydney and suddenly we have, what, like 5,000 people showing up and 30,000 across the country. And then that steps up again as we keep organising and then suddenly we have 150,000 March 15th that year. And then later we continue working and we continue organising and we get 300,000 across the nation. And that was on top of millions and millions across the globe at that point. And also, uh, for some more context, um, at that point in time, especially that first strike, Greta Thunberg was by no means a household name. The idea of climate striking was so new and novel, and Australia was sort of the first country to take the idea of climate striking and turning it into a major event and a major protest. So that growth from a movement that was completely obscure and yet yeah, no one really knew about to something that young people latched onto so quickly and, and really truly believed in was just so fantastic to see and something I felt really privileged to be part of. And it was really reaffirmed my belief in, in young people's place in this movement and in how quickly we turned something from this tiny little idea into this massive, expansive, really valuable and, and hard-hitting movement. And you can see since that first strike, climate change was made the front of the national agenda. It went from an issue that was talked about a bit and most often was talked about in sort of broad, vague scientific terms to something that felt like it was here and now and something where politicians felt like they had to respond. We saw young people's voices being elevated enormously. And I think there's a real sense that this was a movement that they had created for themselves. And they drove in all ways, shapes and forms. It wasn't suited or, or, or sort of censored in any way to fit adult expectations and to make us palatable. It was young people who were angry and, and frustrated and really deeply terrified for their futures. And because of that, when they came to the streets and when they delivered this message, it really cut through and it felt very real and it definitely helped change the national conversation in that way. So going more into this issue, I could discuss all the wonderful ways in which mass movements have changed the world for the better, prove the effectiveness and, and the potential of collective action. But honestly, we don't have to dig that deep to know it. In fact, we need only look at the ongoing actions of governments and the fossil fuel industry to gain all the information we need. So 
Again, personally, before I dove into grassroots action and community organising, I still personally tried to make a difference in my life regarding the climate crisis and especially my carbon footprint. You know, I found blogs online teaching about waste reduction and sustainability. You know, I'd only buy ethically produced clothes. I went vegetarian. I'd avoid single-use plastics where possible. It's sort of this almost puritanical thing that I found online of all these people figuring out all the ways they themselves could remove themselves from these broader systems and broader issues and, and they could themselves tangibly change the world and tangibly change the impact they had on broader society and, and on the climate crisis. And I remember specifically calculating my carbon footprint and seeing all the different ways I could lower it. And it was great seeing that number and seeing how I could get it lower and lower, but it also was incredibly isolating. Because you can take all these steps yourself and you can kind of feel like, oh, well, I definitely have less waste than I had before, but you're not connected in anything. And even as you do it, it feels like that tangible impact isn't really there. And what I didn't know at the time, actually, was that the very idea of a carbon footprint came to be in the early 2000s, largely as a result of campaigns run by British Petroleum and Exxon. You see, because Fossil fuel industry has invested massively in climate change-related propaganda for more than 50 years now. So they started off denying the science and sort of suppressing information from about the 1970s to the 1990s. And then they started going for a more nuanced and sophisticated approach. So British Petroleum launched a campaign in 2000, which cost more than $100 million a year, called Beyond Petroleum Campaign. And as part of this, they launched an online carbon footprint calculator in 2004 because their approach is through shifting the blame from them onto the individuals and onto those who just exist in these systems in society. So, you know, they would tell us to turn the air conditioner off, to dry our clothes in the sun, to purchase energy-efficient appliances, take shorter showers, avoid catching planes, ride a bike, ditch plastics, use a tote bag, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and the inherently destructive nature of the fossil fuel industry isn't what's wrong. Rather, it's our fault for consuming what's often the only options available to us. We are taught that simply existing under our current economic system renders us guilty, but never to question whether these systems were broken in the first place. And this approach has been incredibly effective. I mean, it's a genius marketing campaign because it really has shifted a lot of us into seeing the climate crisis and seeing how we act against it in a, in a purely individualistic way. But even just a few years after this carbon footprint calculator was released, MIT researchers uh, calculated the carbon emissions for a homeless person who ate in soup kitchens and slept in homeless shelters in the U.S., and they found that such individuals, according to these calculations and according to this narrative, emit about eight and a half tons of carbon dioxide a year. So even when you're removed from all these systems, you're still contributing to this issue because, again, the fault isn't really on the individual. What they're trying to say is that just by existing in society in any way, shape or form, it's our fault. And we can see, actually, that this approach was largely disproven through the COVID pandemic. We all stayed home, we didn't drive much, industry slowed down, flights were pretty much all cancelled. Still, carbon emissions fell only by about 6% in 2020, which wasn't enough. It wasn't 
anywhere near the rate we need to avert the worst impacts of the climate crisis. And, you know, I, I can't tell you how many comments I've seen on Facebook and whatnot about the strikes, complaining how, you know, we all go to air-conditioned schools and us young people will have phones which we plug in at night and charge with whatever unrenewable energy sources. But the thing is that it's fundamentally misconstruing this crisis because there's nothing wrong with an air conditioner. The issue is how we're powering it because it's a vessel for energy and it's a vessel for these systems which are constructed by the fossil fuel industry and by our governments today. So it's clear that the fossil fuel industry has realised that they don't actually need to deny climate science anymore. It'd be nice, but it's by no means necessary. Instead, all they have to do is deflect the blame onto us and tell us to isolate and tell us to solve this just as individuals. So it's clear they understand that the biggest threat to them is when we begin working not as individuals, but as citizens of a broader community. Active participation in democracy from all parts of society through banding together under a strategic and considered united front will be what leads to the downfall of the fossil fuel industry. We can also see the same thing from our governments. You know, New South Wales has recently passed anti-protest laws which seriously punish protesters who, quote, disrupt major economic activity. This has followed years of legislation which has increasingly cracked down on protests throughout the state. And in the same way that Scott Morrison addressed the school strikers by telling young people to stay in school and be less activist, it's clear that just addressing the matter at all shows that we were doing something right. Because through years and years of playing by the rules and writing letters and attending protests on the weekend and doing all these sorts of things, they didn't feel threatened. But as soon as we came together, as soon as we started fighting together, they realised that they were really seriously in trouble. Because they wouldn't bother even addressing us or caring about us if they didn't see us as an enormous threat. Because by working by ourselves, the status quo will never be radically transformed. Current power holders will continue to implore us to work under their rules. And we have to break them and we have to fight outside of them in order to change the world. And people from all walks of life must be involved. And only by amplifying each other's voices can we become all the more powerful and destroy these sort of systems and the industries and governments that are fueling this crisis in so many ways. Because the whole is so much greater than the sum of its parts when we begin working together. We only need 3.5% of the population to stand up and continue fighting in protest in order to almost certainly succeed. And that's what we've seen throughout history, through studies of protests over the past 100 years. Once you have 3.5% of the population actively participating in this democratic action, without fail, you see transformative change in society. And it's difficult to do. 3.5% doesn't sound like that big a number, but it, it is really hard to be involved in these sorts of actions if you haven't before. Because... At no point are you really qualified to be an activist. At no point uh, can you feel like you fully know what you're doing. It's just a thing that you end up taking part in one day by, by entering your community, seeing what exists around you and, and how you can best help. Because there is a space for everyone and we need everyone to get involved to really dramatically transform our society and intergenerationally and across all spaces. And this can be forms of protest, this can be lobbying your local government, this can be all sorts of different things. 
But we need to be together as a community. And we need to not see ourselves as individuals working towards one goal, but see ourselves as citizens, as a broader community, as, as a united front that can truly transform the world. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit centreforideas.com and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.